and welcome to Bring Your Own Popcorn. Let us preach to your choir or stoke your ire as we shove our opinions into your ear holes. What we lack in education, we make up for in rants, raves, and rambles. I'm your host, Mixtape Majesty, here today with a very special guest, my close personal colleague and one of my best friends. She is a training coordinator and program developer in children's mental health. Please welcome Lindsay Armanderas. Yay! I'm so excited to be with you, Mixtape. This is so cool. I <laughs> finally get to here. join in on the rant. Yeah, rants, raves, and rambles. And rambles. Quick check. Did I say your last name right? Yes, you certainly did. Also, yes. I'm glad that you added best, like one of your best friends, because when you said colleague, I was like, oh, <laughs> our relationship has shifted. Much so much more. <laughs> we are going to look at a very specific movie today that is near and dear to your heart. But before we get into that, I'm going to ask you a few questions about your experience with movies and your relationship with movies, because that's what this podcast is all about. Starting with, can you remember the first movie that you saw in the movie theater? I remember very specifically two movies I saw in the same year, one of which I believe you also did. The Lion King, I think, was the first one, like <laughs> summer of 94 or whatever that was. Yeah, I, it Actually, both movies I saw in 1994 in the theaters were very emotional experiences because The Lion King was so sad. I believe I went with my dad. Mm -hmm. And then when spoilers, Mufasa died. <laughs> like, cut, cut. I have to cut the spoiler oh. out. <laughs> no, you're good. The dad died. <laughs> there were so many crying kids. And I remember oh. hearing the crying in the theater, but not crying myself. And then hearing the other crying kids like made me cry. But I remember my dad like talking about it later and being like, it was sad to hear all these kids in the theater. That would be sad. I didn't even think of that. That was also my first movie in theater, but I didn't have a dad, so I didn't give a shit. <laughs> I'm just like, kidding. Get it together, kids. What's what your been, deal? Who cares? I am just kidding. I did cry, even though I didn't have a dad. So good yeah. one, Disney. Good job yeah. making kids cry. Damn you, Disney. They did it again. <laughs> And then the other one was Christmas of that year. I went with my mom and my sister to see Little Women, the oh. good one. The good one. I haven't, I haven't seen the new one, so I don't know. But I stand by Winona Ryder. Spoilers for that movie. The sister dies. And so I like thought with my sister and just, oh, it makes me want to cry just thinking about that movie now because I'm very, very close with my sister. Yeah. It was a rough year. But it was 94 was a rough year in a lot of ways. I happened to look up the year that it did come out because that is the first, like the strongest movie theater memory that I have from childhood. Did all three of you love it equally? Yes. And we still love it. In college, I used to try to, it's a comfort zone movie for me, even though it's so sad. Mm -hmm. I would make my roommates watch it when we were like drunk coming home from the bars or like <laughs> too high and eating a lot of food and I'd be like we need to put on little women I need to feel comforted <laughs> power to the ladies it's like a very strong woman story which I enjoy and especially in the 90s there weren't it was getting better but there still weren't a lot of heavily female fronted movies that you could turn to like there was little women 94 and then there was now and then 95 yeah I just I want to see that movie I've never seen it but I did hear your episode on it 
And so I've really been wanting to check that out. I think that you would like it. Um, like if you listen I to like the episode, cast. yeah, it's a great cast. If you listen to the episode, you'll know that it's like not a good movie per se, but I still love it. It's like one of those movies. I mean, it's... for any of you who watch this movie, we're going to discuss. I think you'll know that I don't really care about the quality. Nailed it. I care about <laughs> how it makes me feel in my heart. <laughs> and then with yeah. now and then it's fun if you have any nostalgia at all about the 90s when we grew up it's very fun for that aspect of it oh yeah totally <laughs> I do have a lot of nostalgia and I feel like our I don't know if every generation has this our generation is like really into nostalgia I think so too it's actually something that I don't relate to even though I just said that about that movie like that's not the big pull for me but yeah. I also feel like our generation has nostalgia for like not even their childhood yes like yes our generation has nostalgia for the 80s when we were like babies (laughs) yeah it's like oh I don't remember any of that or I never experienced that but I really connect to it a lot for some reason yeah I feel like that's sort of an annoying thing about our generation it's a fascinating psychological thing to explore like where that's coming from it probably makes a lot of sense because millennials we got like the shitty end of the deal. Gen Z is still coming into age to find out like just how shitty they have it. It's going to be just as shitty, I think. But Mm -hmm. Generation X was the last generation that could like kind of make it on their own after they got out of college and got a degree. And the millennials have just inherited a shit show. So many millennials still have to live with their parents and are having to get two jobs to have a place to live. And that wasn't the case in the 80s for the young people in the 80s. That wasn't the case. I don't know if people that are nostalgic for older times are consciously aware of that but it could factor in I often wonder too if like we are getting this weird baked in nostalgia thing from the generations that raised our generation because we're so dependent and like enmeshed with them in a really unhealthy way yeah so it's like oh we're nostalgic for like the 60s and the I don't know whatever else and now you must be nostalgic for everything too. Well, my next question is sort of custom to a pandemic era because I didn't used to ask what was the last movie you saw in theaters because it's just about new releases who cares but that's not the case anymore because now theaters have been closed down for over a year I think they're starting to open up again but what was the last movie that you saw in theaters before everything shut down? Okay so I have two answers for you. I saw one, the last movie I saw in theaters with a roof over my head was The Invisible Man. And I saw it the week that stuff shut down. We'd bought our tickets already and then heard how scary things were getting. And we were like, we already paid these $20 tickets for this movie. We're definitely going and let's try to sit far away from people. We like got assigned seats and still people were like, hacking it up in that theater I was very very scared and aware and the movie was scary so (laughs) it's very stressful (laughs) it was stressful you all didn't get sick after that no no we're very grateful very lucky and then I actually did see a movie at the drive-in during I don't know if that counts I feel like that's (laughs) all we have during the days of COVID so that one was Fantasy Island (laughs) (laughs) was horrible but it also was fun to go to the drive-in yeah the drive-in I think has stayed open the whole time like they've been thriving 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 I've been driving at the driving <laughs> I've been to them to there too uh during the, Them, thems I believe to, to thems. I've been to them drive-ins during the pandemic going to the drive-in is a little bit like driving your 
bedroom to outside and then watching a movie in your bedroom because you still can like check your phone and talk openly to the person next to you. You know, you can choose not to do those things, but you do because it's fun. But the movie theater, part of what's immersive about the movie theater experience is that you have to be respectful of the other people around you. So you can't openly talk. You can't have your phone out unless you want to get shot. (laughs) Do you know about that? No. Quick edit here. I told this story wrong the first time I told it on the podcast, so I'm retelling it now correctly. Rest in peace, Chad Olson, a father and husband in Tampa, Florida, who was shot dead for texting in the movie theater by a retired cop. A cab. I love that idea of driving your bedroom to see a movie. I get very gross at a drive-in. I feel like a lot of people are gross at the drive-in because you're you don't realize you're in public technically. You mean no like taking shoes. off your shoes? Yes. I take no off my pants. Shoes. It, like I don't know. I'll be like, oh, let me switch into my PJ pants in the middle of the parking. Hell yeah. <laughs> Next question. What was the first movie that you saw in the theaters without your parents? Honestly, I don't. I don't really remember the switch from seeing movies with my parents to seeing them without them. But I think freshman year of high school, I went with like a big group of kids and it did feel very novel. Like, oh, we're like big kids now. We're not in middle school and we're going to a movie. People might make out. (laughs) We like took up two back rows of the theater And we saw that M. Night Shyamalan movie where there's like a blind girl in a village. The village? village? (laughs) That's that's the one. Yeah. That's a fun one to see with a group of kids. Did people get scared? Yes. It was a very fun one to get scared to because it's like stupid scary. Yeah. Jump scare, but it's all sort of ridiculous. Also. That was the twist. (laughs) Again, M. Night. (laughs) Well, the thing about the village is that he blatantly stole that whole movie from a book and I feel like I was like one of the first people that caught on to it there was a young adults book that I read and I loved because it was like a dystopian creepy thing that takes place in a village and you got to escape it and blah 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 and you don't know that you're you think you're back in time but it turns out you're in modern day until you get to the end and the girl escapes and yeah. I loved that book um, and I loved M. Night Shyamalan after Signs and Sixth Sense so I went to see yeah. the village and I, and I was like, oh, this is based on that book. And I like waited for that in the credits and it wasn't there. I think I like Googled it and I was like, wait, what the hell? And then later on, I think there was a lawsuit where uh, the author was like, that's my book. And I think he was like, no, I didn't mean to. Oh my gosh. It does kind of make sense though, because I think the concept of the village is different and better than a lot of other M. Night Shyamalan movies. It's like, oh, the twist is actually cool. And it's sort of this utopia or uh, dystopian kind of an idea that he doesn't always do. But then the way that he pulled it off was sort of less cool than it could have been, maybe. The book was called Running Out of Time, written by Margaret Peterson Haddix. It was written in 1995. And Simon & Schuster did claim to Shyamalan that the film had stolen the, the book. I don't know if he they successfully got any money out of it or anything but yeah they noticed (laughs) I love the idea that like you noticed only and Simon and Schuster you had to call them up yeah (laughs) have you guys seen this yet (laughs) yeah let's see uh what is your favorite snack to have at the movie theater I always get junior mints and like a medium smaller medium popcorn with butter on it and I used to always get like a an icy remember the icies 
Oh yeah. <laughs> they still exist, right? Now. <laughs> yeah. And I go, I usually get like a glass of wine or something because movie mm. theaters are adult now. But yeah, some of them, the fancy ones. Some of them. Yeah. The, the one that I worked at, we did not have alcohol. We did have a smooth or sorry, a icy machine. And sometimes it would malfunction. So you would like come out from your break and there'd just be like a pile of icy like dripping Ew. down. <laughs> yeah. A pile. Oh yeah. <laughs> a little mountain. <laughs> What movies have you seen in the Mile High Club? Movies you've seen on an airplane. I've seen a lot of movies on airplanes. I've been on a lot of airplanes. And we would go on like multiple trips a year, annual flights that we liked to take or my parents liked to take us on. The ones that I remember best are, and this is like not a movie I would choose to remember seeing, but I've seen The Secret of Nim, I think is what it was called. Oh, I love that movie. Really? The Animated Rats? No. Oh. No, sorry. The Last Mimsy. That's what it was called. that one I don't know. I think Rain Wilson was in it. Oh, weird. As like a child? No. No. He was an adult. (laughs) (laughs) He must be older than I think then. Not worth checking out, I would say. But then again, I think every movie seen on an airplane is like worse than it is in real life. Which is why I find it interesting to ask people what they've tolerated seeing in in flight and whether if you saw a good movie on a plane, were you even able to enjoy it? I think that's interesting, the different ways that we can experience films and how you can not appreciate something that you might appreciate otherwise if your environment is really not comfortable. Totally. As I've gotten older, I feel more emotional watching movies on planes and so I have to be careful what I choose from just based on like experience I think choosing mildly emotional movies and then getting really upset at them yeah um and then getting extra dehydrated on an airplane because you're crying so much (laughs) and it's dry up there it's stuck it's true Um, the clouds are sucking away all your tears one time I did fly to Europe and I watched The Breakfast Club, I believe, three to four times in a row. Oh, because damn. it was like the one movie on there that was available that was like, I thought was excellent. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I could get into this. And then I finished it and was like, why not? I'm going to do it again. It feels right. Okay, two questions. Was this the first time that you'd seen The Breakfast Club? No. Okay. No. Because that would be fascinating if it was. Second question. Did you have to pay for each replay? No. The movie options that I was choosing from were all free. Gotcha. Speaking of nostalgia of our generation, I feel like that's one of the movies that's contributed to it so much because our generation fucking loves that movie that's about teens in the 80s before we were teens. Yeah, we didn't know teens in the 80s, but (laughs) we were never those people. (laughs) Why do we relate to them so much? I don't know. Who was your favorite in The Breakfast Club? I really liked the Michael C. Hall guy. Sounds right. The nerd. I liked the, the nerd. nerd. His part always made me cry too. He was being bullied sort of by like overbearing parents. And then he, so his situation, this is spoilers again. Do you want me to continue? That's fine. <laughs> his part was about a suicide attempt. Oh, that's which right. Which was very heartbreaking. The other one that made me cry a lot, actually, not for the kid who was talking, but for the kid who was being bullied in the story, it was the jock talking about, he like taped some hairy kid's butt cheeks together or something. And that part always makes me cry. I'm like, that is not cool. My favorite character was obviously the goth, Ali Sheedy. The Ali Sheedy. Mm -hmm. And then um, Emilio Estevez, which I don't remember what, he was like the bad boy, right? 
No, he was the jock. Uh, Judd, Judd Nelson. Yeah, I really had a crush on him in that movie, The Bad Boy. And when he wears her earring at the end, I thought that was super hot. Oh, yeah. When I said Emilio Estevez, I meant Judd Nelson. I also had a crush on him. His part always made me cry, too. All these <laughs> kids and their mean parents. I guess that's part of why our generation loves this movie is because how often does that happen where kids get together and talk about how parents just don't understand? Yeah, we never talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> across, you know, across subcultures. Right, right. That's true. Like specifically on airplanes I feel like there's something about the altitude I'm blaming the altitude it makes me emotional (laughs) maybe it's something about how you're watching movies about the people on earth while you're floating above the earth yeah I'm disconnected from my peeps yeah (laughs) Uh, I'm going to ask you one more question before we get into our feature presentation what was your most embarrassing moment you ever had in a movie theater I'm racking my brains here and I mean I, I guess I never do anything embarrassing. So <laughs> that's what this is. Just kidding. Yeah. Maybe the times I was the most embarrassing or maybe the times I don't remember how embarrassing it was. So that's not a great sign. That is a great sign. Because then like the worst thing about embarrassing yourself is remembering it forever and like having it haunt you at 2 a.m. But if you don't even remember, that's great. <laughs> yeah, I've blocked it out of my memory or something else was going on that I is the reason I'm forgetting I've fallen asleep in a number of movies that's a bummer but not particularly embarrassing yeah some people are embarrassed by that but I'm personally am not nor do I think it's embarrassing for other people to do it sleeping's cool it's fun <laughs> we need to do it yeah we need to do it more hot takes alert sleeping's cool so we are going to get into our feature film for this evening uh Tonight's film that we are examining came out in 1977. It currently has a 71% audience rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Interestingly, it doesn't even have a critics rating at all. It's, I guess, so little known that critics haven't even bothered to review it. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, Let's keep it that way. I don't yeah, really care. It's fine. I don't know what they think. Yeah. The 6.8 out of 10 on IMDb's reviews. This movie was the last in for uh, many people that were involved in it. It was the last feature film that Vivian Pickles was in, who plays Clara last name? Grimsworthy. 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 It was the last film that Helen Hayes, famous Broadway actress, Aww. singer, has an EGOT. She, she started her Hollywood career in silent films and then did a ton of Broadway. Is- is it because of death or other reasons that these were the final? No, it wasn't for death. For um, for Vivian Pickles, it was not death. Helen Hayes, she lived in 93. So she did, this was her last on-screen role. And then she narrated a movie in 83. And then just didn't do anything, just didn't do any other movies. This was the second to last movie that the director made. And that, this one was because of death. So this Mm -hmm. movie was directed by Norman Tokar, and he did one Disney movie every year of the 70s up until Mm -hmm. 78 or starting in the 60s. And then his last one was The Cat from Outer Space. This was also the last Disney movie that Jodie Foster, who's in the starring role of Casey Brown, ever made. Um, This was her sixth Disney film and her 13th film total that she had ever done. And the movie that we're talking about is a little known 
film, despite its like epic cast and crew, is called Candle Shoe. And I had Yay. never, <laughs> never heard of it until I asked you for something, a movie that was significant to you, like from your childhood or significant in some other way. And you mentioned this one and that you had seen it a bunch of times. So tell me a little bit about your experience with Candleshoe and why it's so special to you. Yeah. Oh, I love this movie. And it's funny. I think when I mentioned it to you, I was like, I think it's like Jodie Foster's first film. And then I also looked it up and was like, oops, I, yeah, I, she's amazing. And I did not really know the depth of her childhood acting career, but I think this is such a kick-ass role of hers that she pulls up really nicely. But as a kid, this was one of the movies that I would watch on repeat. Maybe this speaks to me watching The Breakfast Club on repeat on an airplane, but I did, I have always tended to watch movies on repeat. I think it also speaks to being a high anxiety person to watch something that you've already seen feels very comfortable. And it's mm -hmm. like, oh, I already know what's gonna happen. They've actually done studies on that and they showed that, that that is the case. Watching the same movies or shows over and over again is a good coping tactic for people with PTSD and other traumas. Because yeah, it's like, you know what's gonna happen next, unlike the trauma and the uh, sudden terror of your life sometimes. <laughs> predictability and consistency mm -hmm. feels really good. So that, that, yeah, that really resonates with me. I think my parents or my mom specifically really enjoyed a lot of like the very, very early live action Disney movies, which I think is what led her to this one. My dad was a big movie fan in general. And so he really liked the cast in this movie. Like David Niven is a badass. And my mom really loved like that darn cat and the absent-minded professor, like some of those movies. And so I think this was one that she wanted to like kind of introduce to her kids. But otherwise, I'm not sure why it became like such a household thing, staple. We actually had a moment in our like family that felt very Candleshoe. There's a train chase in mm. the movie. And we had a train chasing experience as a kid. We were like missing a train that we had to be on. So I don't you, know, parked, I can... you parked on the tracks in front of it to make <laughs> yeah. it stop? My dad put up one finger and that train stopped. No, just kidding. And so we all stayed in the car and my dad was like, can you catch that train? And the cab driver was like, we can make it. Like chased it down to the next stop basically. And oh. like, we got on there. I thought it was going to yeah. be a thing where like he drove alongside it and you guys jumped onto the train. <laughs> <laughs> like, damn, this cab driver. My parents are tossing the kids onto the train. <laughs> I think the other thing about this movie is just that like the soundtrack just runs through my head whenever I'm doing anything on a deadline. I have to get something done quickly. I hear that music like it's like very good amp up, like get it done music. There's something about Helen Hayes's character who is just like the perfect grandmother and mother. She's just like a lovely caregiving figure. And there was something about her that just made me feel feel like even still watching it today and like watching my mom be she's sort of like a mothering figure to anyone in her life and such a beautiful like grandmother herself like there's qualities that remind me of my mom and her ability mm. to just be like oh no I don't care whose kid you were you're my kid you know I care for you that's lovely 
Do you think that your mom modeled her whole personality off of her? Yes, she really <laughs> came into her own in 1977. And no, I think my mom comes from a long line of really beautiful, lovely mothers and fathers, really nice caregivers. Mm. Um, but she lost her mother at a young age. And mm. so she was the oldest girl and became kind of the mother figure in her household. Uh, yeah. Um, and was like one of the oldest cousins and so she was kind of like the mom to a lot of kids who needed a mom she would sort of go in and take on these like after school programs to kind of like give kids a safe place to land when they needed one she'd be like the lady on campus that you like go to and like you need a hug or you need someone to play checkers with oh no it's like such a good mom oh that's so sweet I love that yeah I, I wouldn't have expected that to all of that sentiment to come from this movie or from this character, but I love hearing it. And it's also interesting that you say that your mom lost her mother and then kind of mothered her siblings because my great grandma has the exact same story. Oh, she's passed away now, but because she was my great grandma, so she's much, much older, but uh, she lost her mom when she was eight and had a bunch of siblings. And then I always knew her as mom. Like her name was mom. If you were under the age of 30, her name was mom to you. She was just mom to everybody. So it was a very, very similar thing. And there, if you would go to her house, I didn't witness this by the time that I was around because she was at that point pretty elderly, but apparently it used to be that if you would go to her house, there would just be random kids. There's always just random kids running around. And that's just the house that people would go to, <laughs> that the kids oh, would flock to. Very lovely. So many people have not seen this film, as I discussed earlier. So we should do a brief little recap, which I'm going to let you do, because you did tell me that you could recite the entire film <laughs> top to bottom. You don't have to oh, do that. Oh, boy. But give me a nice recap for the listeners who won't have seen it. Okay, get your editing fingers ready. (laughs) But basically, so this movie is about Jodie Foster, who plays, plays, she's like a foster kid, orphan kid in LA, like the mean streets of LA. And in and out of foster homes, she, in the very beginning of the movie, gets sort of sold out by her foster caregivers to what we find out is like a private detective who's working for this British guy who's looking for someone to play a lookalike of the long lost missing granddaughter to this like big fancy British family that like lives in this castle called Candleshoe. Movie name drop. Jodie Foster is like, so you're just trying to like bring me to this old lady because you think that I'm her granddaughter? There's no reward in it. What's what is in it for you? What's in it for me? What's going on? Uh, she cuts a deal with this guy because she's super street smart as like a 15 year old. And she's like, I'll do this con with you on this old lady if you get me a Ferrari and you have to give me like 10 percent of whatever you make out of this. Yeah. Very cute. Ultimately, it turns out that this this dude who's trying to swindle the old candle shoe lady has discovered that the the actual castle once belonged to the pirate Captain Joshua St. Edmund, I believe was his name. Gallywag pirate guy who also was like very adventurous. And he left all of his riches, all these Spanish doubloons hidden somewhere. And they think it's at Candleshoe. 
his cousin was like a thief who used to work there and got fired for stealing. And she had stolen the will of Captain Joshua. And it gives a clue that like the next clue is at this in the library at Candleshoe. You go from there to find the treasure. So the whole thing is this elaborate plan to get a kid into Candleshoe to be their inside man looking for the treasure of Captain Joshua. That's the old, the premise. And yeah. then love abounds and walls break down and a family happens. Yeah. <laughs> what you would expect to happen in a Disney movie. I had a bunch of predictions that they like pretty much came true, but surprisingly, they didn't come true exactly how I thought they would come true. Because right away, like as soon as she agreed to do it, I was like, okay, she's going to get there and she really is the heir. And so the grandma is going to like recognize her instantly and be like, oh, it's it's, uh, finally her. Like I would know her anywhere. And -hmm. then she's like not going to believe it at first. But then when she like experiences the love of a grandma, she's like memories are slowly going to come back. And that was my prediction. And that's not actually quite how it happens. And another fun thing about the end of the movie, we are free free fall on the spoilers the ending is ambiguous so you don't actually ever know if she really is the heir so I was gonna yeah. ask you what do you think what's your interpretation oh when I was a kid I thought for sure oh she she is it turns out that she is the heir um she's the long lost granddaughter because they sort of set it up throughout the movie like they know these things about this three-year-old who went missing that all kind of match up with who this 15 year old is now she has like a same matching scar she has the same food allergies I was like oh for sure there's only one kid in the world who's allergic to strawberries or whatever it is that was the one thing that made me think that she wasn't her because she's eating strawberries she's eating like she's just throwing them back but she's supposed to be allergic to them she does get a rash though so she she does does eat them but she yeah because I think that was my interpretation because so she's eating strawberries. The Grimsworth, Grimsworthy, the old maid who got uh, fired, um, says, "Oh, you can't eat strawberries. They bring you out in a rash." And she says, "Check." So I thought she was saying, "Yeah, actually, they do," but she might just be saying, "Check." Like, okay, I'll remember that. Oh, yeah, but you're right. Maybe, maybe she doesn't. Yeah, well, because that's what I thought. I thought that maybe she was eating them and then later there's going to be a scene where she was like scratching a rash, but there wasn't. Yeah, you're right. Maybe just that's that might be my kid brain just sort of remembering like, oh, that means she is confirming that she does get a rash. But Mm. looking back, I guess that wasn't really how it went down. (laughs) They've got these sort of red herrings that make you think maybe she is the real kid. So as a Mm -hmm. kid, I thought so. And looking back, I don't think so. But the point is, it doesn't matter. It's like, it doesn't matter who you are. This woman is, you're her family, regardless, she loves you kind of a thing. The final little speech that she gives at the train station, I always makes me cry. Yeah, what's I'm forgetting. I don't think we've actually said her character's name. Lady Gwendolyn is is the character played by Helen Hayes. I always think of her as just grandmother because that's what everyone calls her. And oh. the, they either call her the old lady or grandmother. <laughs> true, true. Lady Gwendolyn Learning. of Candleshoe. <laughs> Here's my first interesting fact about this movie. Um, so Jodie was 14 years old when it started filming and 15 by the time that it wrapped. And like I said, this was her 13th film. The other films that she had done before this movie included Taxi Driver, in which she portrayed mm-hmm. a 12-year-old prostitute. And she herself was, I think it was 12. 
she turned down the role of Violet in Pretty Baby, which was a 1978 film about a child prostitute, <laughs> to do Candleshoe instead. And oh, I was so, so glad, happy to read that. First of all, happy that she did this instead. Second of all, annoyed that like Hollywood had the idea to do another movie about a child prostitute and then to cast the same child actress in this tr- like it's a traumatizing role to typecast this young woman prepubescent woman before, yeah before she even child. can make any decisions she's a child before she can make any decisions about her own career they're gonna typecast her as child prostitute yeah so i'm so happy that she turned it down to do candle shoe instead and be a badass little punk instead yeah and So one of the things that really like speaks to me now as an adult when I watch it is that there's no, they don't really address this, but there's no sort of genderizing of her. Like she's very just, she strikes me as herself. Like she's just a person. It doesn't really matter if she's like a girl or boy, you know what I mean? She's Mm -hmm. like sort of gender neutral in a cool way, which struck me as like, Maybe that's how she kind of wanted to be portrayed as a human. I don't know. Knowing who she is now, like maybe, maybe that was comfortable. Well, I read something where she said that Taxi Driver was the first movie she did where she felt like she had to make a character instead of just playing herself. So for her roles with Disney, Mm. even though this came after, I got the sense that she felt like her roles with Disney were kind of just, she was being cast because it was kind of her. Although speaking of her being cast in this movie... The screenwriter of this movie was the original screenwriter was David Swift. And then there were some edits or co-writing from a writer named Rosemary Ann Sisson. But David Swift, the screenwriter, was originally also supposed to be the director. And then when Disney cast Jodie Foster, he said, absolutely not. She's totally wrong for the role and quit the film. (gasps) Good riddance. Whatever. (laughs) Yeah, right. Didn't did the director who the guy that they actually got to direct did he also direct her in no he did the Parent Trap that was not her. um no David Swift did the Parent Trap so he was oh, a, he did yeah David Swift did Pollyanna and Parent Trap and he was supposed to be the director for this one as well so oh, okay. David Swift and the guy who did direct this Norman Tokar were two of like Disney's directors they had on lock so Norman Tokar is the mm-hmm. one he like did a Disney film every year he actually only did Disney films so before that I think he did stage um he was a broadway actor himself and he did 93 episodes of leave it to beaver (laughs) oh um and tv stuff and then he did like nothing but disney movies he had one non-disney film which was where the red fern grows oh okay that's so interesting to hear that she felt like she was sort of playing herself in a lot of those roles she is so strongly it's and it also seems so stupid that someone would say she wasn't right for the part because like yeah, maybe she's not the first person you would look at and be like, yes, you are this long, like orphan kid who's like street smart or something. <laughs> but, well, but she just exudes it so well. She so embodies this part. I really love her in it. She does. And my thinking was that I wonder if David Swift, this, you know, Disney director, didn't want to cast her because she did Taxi Driver. So it's like not very Disney friendly child actress anymore, you know? And then this was her last Disney movie also. Right. Maybe so. He was already typecasting her. There's some interesting observations for me watching this. 
So she's a foster, she was a foster child in the foster system. She doesn't have a lot of memories. She obviously has a lot of trauma as all kids in the foster system do. And then you're introduced to her as this like street punk who's like picking on other kids, which when I saw that scene, it wasn't like, oh, she's bullying them. It was more like street kids doing street kids things. She steals some kids ball. And I just assume like they probably stole her ball yesterday. You know, that kind of like street. Yeah, kids for stuff. sure. But I watched like four reviews on YouTube of other reviewers talking about this movie and unanimously they described her. These are all white men. <laughs> so four other white men who reviewed this movie, they called her uh, an asshole, a shithead, <gasps> a con man and a street hustler. And they just <gasps> described her as like, they're just like, I don't understand like why grandma would want to keep this like little brat around. <laughs> Like Ew! Like, screw those shitheads. Yeah, I, I, mean, like, I, I would agree with the con. She's a con artist, self-proclaimed. Yeah, like I think that she would agree with that one. Yeah, she's learning to con for sure. Yeah, she's a as, child, and she's very good at it. I would add, <laughs> and it's probably serving her very well. Yeah, I'm, I th- I remember as a kid watching the opening scene, um, and thinking like, oh, how goofy! What a bunch of pranks. Yeah, And then watching it now and being like, she's so angry. She mm-hmm. has so much to be angry about. Because like, yeah, she they like knock over these giant oil drums in like a car shop. It was the only one that as an adult, I'm like, ooh, that's <laughs> less of a prank and more of a liability now. Very, <laughs> very dangerous, yeah. They do some like minor shoplifting. And the big one is the kicker is she like, takes her banana peel and like she's right next to a trash can but she like shoves it into a mailbox and like sticks it to the man yeah I'm like yeah she's angry through you guys yeah and which just considering the hijinks that real kids living on the street get up to very mild <laughs> putting a banana yeah. in a mailbox compared to the violence and horrors that street kids can be getting up to because they're children who should have safe homes to go to and supervision yeah it's pretty freaking tame so I do think that perspective on it is coming from people who like cannot imagine and have no experience with kids in the foster system or kids who have experienced that kind of trauma which I also found to be a very interesting thing for um, Disney to touch on which we haven't Mm -hmm. touched on how I hate Disney which it's probably been brought up in previous episodes but There is an interesting thing about their live action films that I like in that they do manage to touch on trauma in this way that becomes accessible to a broader population than it would be if it was like put it out there for you and then like this is really what it is. It's very subtle and it's like Disneyfied and made a little glossy like they don't really address the extreme trauma that this kid would actually be going through like nightmares and like stuff like that but she does articulate it herself to her grandmother and actually articulates her entire personality that she's developed to cope with this horrific trauma. But it's like mm-hmm. they're walking in a garden and there's sunshine, there's like nice music playing. So it's all very easy yeah. to digest and kind of gloss over unless you are people like us who work with children who are in this population of experiencing trauma or in the foster system who have a clearer picture of of what that can really look like. Yeah, that you make a really good point. I think that it, it almost feels like the intention of portraying it is more about um, drumming up 
empathy or something. It's like, oh, let's let's get at it. Let's touch on it from this perspective as of like empathy. You can feel for it or or sympathy even. Like you can feel for this person and feel for what they're going through. But it's not so much about like helping understand why that why that the, these things are normal. These are normal reactions and feeling and coping mechanisms. Yeah. Um, but that little speech that she gives while they're walking too is one that like gives me the chills every time. Cause she says something about like, if you don't give it out, you never have to get it back. I think is what she, is one of the things that she says, yeah. but she's ex- explaining why she's put up this wall. And like, she has nothing that she cares to give to anybody else because she's out looking for number one. And Helen Hayes says like, that sounds very lonely or like, you must feel very lonely. Mm-hmm. And she says, I'm not alone. I've got me. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, yeah, but you're a baby. Yeah. <laughs> you should have yeah. more than that. Yeah. yeah. And maybe it was from her like childhood acting career that sounds very intense that like she does it. Those moments in this movie feel very genuinely like a young kid, a child who seems old beyond her years. Mm-hmm. Forced to grow movie. up too fast, for sure. Yes. Yeah. From what I've read about it, I think that is accurate, and I think that I remember her saying in an interview that this role like really resonated for her, and she wanted it. Although oh, wow. I know also that she has a wonderful relationship with her mother. Like she really loves her mom. She brings her up oh. in all of her speeches. <laughs> oh, that's nice too. And yeah, surprising. Then I guess that she would resonate with this. I think more from the sense she might resonate more with it from the aspect of like the trauma and all that is coming from Hollywood more than her own family. And even if you have a great family, like you're shooting on set all the time, you might not be able to really connect with them or feel a part of the family. Cause like Hollywood warps you and being a celebrity, you can't really be a normal person ever again. Once you're famous. Yes. There are also things about this family that I wanted to talk about that I think are really dangerous dynamics or unhealthy dynamics. Like, it's not just like, oh, this perfect family and she can be a part of it too. You know, there's like (laughs) things that I think are meant to come off as very charming and lovely. But in my, my perspective is that they are harmful, which I didn't realize until watching it this time around. Mm. Um, But actually, before we get to that, I wanted to ask you, because this struck me differently this time around. What did you think of having not seen it before and not knowing where the plot was going to take you some of the potential like trauma and danger when she's first getting like kind of picked up and shuttled around and like she doesn't know what's going on that part feels so scary watching it now so scary yeah and I watched it with a friend and both of us were like what did Lindsay make me watch (laughs) like what is that I am sorry I (laughs) I didn't see it through that lens until now because I think as a kid I always knew what was going to happen because I've seen it so many times well and you wouldn't have known the other things that could happen that it looked like were happening what Lindsay is describing is at the beginning of the movie when she gets sold out by her foster caregivers to this private detective. Well, you don't know that he's a private detective. It's some just some man who immediately grabs her and like touches her, takes her into a car and won't tell her anything. So this is 14 year old girl being taken to an undisclosed location from a strange man she's never met before. She doesn't know why. She doesn't know where they're going. They get to a hotel, which is not where you want to be taken to by a strange no. man. 
Uh, he then directs her to go shower, which is not yeah. what you want a strange man to tell she you to says, go in a hotel. So it's a hotel room. Now what? And he says, now you take a bath. And she says, why? And he says, because I said so. It's so ominous and scary to watch yeah. now. Yeah. And then he gives her a dress to put on afterwards, which is even more like, Ugh, oh, no. <laughs> Before that, though, she gets slapped in the face by an adult man. That's right. And then so she's uh, naked. But she in also bathroom. doesn't know. Yeah. A second strange man. She's naked in the bathroom, but she's wearing a towel. The two men now. So the first man that she doesn't know and a second strange man burst into the bathroom while she's drying her hair and then give her her dress. Slap her in the face and give her a dress. Yeah, because she gives him a smart aleck answer about if she, do you remember where you got this scar that mm. we find out later matches the scar of the long lost kid? Which, yeah, that, that whole intro was, was horrifying. And another like encapsulation of the way that Disney will portray horrifying trauma in this like way that you can kind of gloss over it or kind of just like be like, oh, yeah. well, it's probably going to be fine. And in a way, I think, I don't know if this is the intention, but you could argue what it ultimately does is it sort of reads the room. It like speaks to the audience, which is other kids. And she seems like she's not aware of what could happen. Growing up as a kid who also didn't know what could have happened, I'm like, oh, how weird, what's gonna happen? And like, why is this guy so mean? But yeah. not thinking like she could just as easily being like, be trafficked or whatever um, yeah and that's what didn't feel realistic to me because like absolutely the disney audience isn't aware of that but a foster kid living on the streets 100 percent knows like yes yeah so if that's the audience then it feels very strange that that's not you know that this is the route they're gonna take it and just be like oblivious as oblivious as she is or as i was watching yeah it's a five-year-old <laughs> yeah yeah but one thing that i do want to address about this movie it would be remiss not to address the huge moment of racism in this film which also coming back to the reviews I watched of white men reviewing this film they either didn't mention it and then one guy mentioned it and he was like it was like an afterthought and he was like oh yeah there was this like weird moment there was something that was like just just slightly racist but like it, I mean it was nothing really it was like just slightly racist but like it happened so fast and he like kept backtracking and then eventually like described what happened. But it was funny to me that like, why can't you just say it's, it was racist and it was the seventies and yeah, it was really racist. Both things horrible. are true. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it was very racist. <laughs> you don't have to downplay it. Just, just no, admit it. <laughs> you don't um, have to wish it didn't happen. Cause yeah, it's in there. <laughs> that makes it worse to be like, yeah, <laughs> it's there. So there's um, the house that, Jodie Foster's character goes to stay in, has a gaggle of other orphan children who came to stay with grandma because um, the orphanage was crowded and grandma's like, well, I have so many extra rooms. Everyone come hang out. One of them is played by an actress named Sarah Tamakuni. And I could not find her actual ethnicity, which I was just curious about it because of the racist portrayal thing that they did to her. Um, but this was her last movie. She only did two movies. And so I really couldn't find much information about her at all. But I wanted to be sure to mention her name, Sarah Tamakuni. And she was the only, I believe, the only person of color in the movie. And definitely that the had only, a speaking role. That had a speaking role. And the only child of color in the uh, children that are that have speaking roles on 
on screen. And the thing that happens with her that is horrible, the kids get into a little scrap, a little rough and tumble because uh, Casey is being, is refusing to do work. And so the kids start kind of fighting. And when it comes to uh, Sarah Tamakumi's turn to fight, she strikes a generic karate pose and oh i'm using air quotes i realize the podcast won't know that i i said quotes on karate i'm, <laughs> I'm a witness being sarcastic um and it plays the infamous what is what i have learned is called the oriental riff which is also a racist name these were back in the times when people did still think it was okay to call people of asian descent oriental in case you don't know, oriental is a meaningless word that should only be applied to rugs and ramen and not to human beings. Uh, the orient is like, I believe it's not even a real place because I think I Googled it once because I was like, what even is that? And it's like more of a concept. It's certainly not a country. You can't say like my ethnic origins are the orient. That's not a thing. That's a racist thing that was made up for Westerners. This uh, riff was created for the stage show called the grand chinese spectacle of aladdin which also sounds very racist particularly since the story of aladdin is not a chinese story <laughs> so i don't know no. what was going on with that that's where it came from that's the original yes it was it's, wow it was called the aladdin quickstep was the original name of it in what year 1847 was the origin it was created by westerners it's not not created by anyone of East Asian or Asian descent. It uh, was repeatedly used in other plays and movies throughout the early 1900s because to the Western listener, something about the pentatonic scale being harmonized with parallel open fourths makes the riff sound like East Asian music to a typical Western listener. And I read that from Wikipedia. So I don't know that much about music theory, but uh, yeah, it's used horrifically racistly in movies when just an Asian character is on screen or does something quote Asian which is also problematic right. which is one of the reasons I wanted to know what this actress Sarah Tamakuni what her ethnicity even was because did it even make sense that she was like is karate even from her like culture I'm sure it isn't and even if it was not everyone in a culture knows a martial art that happens to come from their culture just everything about it yeah it's horrifying especially that they made this tiny little girl she was probably like seven do this and she would have had no idea like why is this happening to me yeah it's sort of one of those horrible like ugh, gut punch moments because it's so first of all it's weird that it's only blonde white kids that are in like being portrayed in the movie as a as you put it a gaggle of orphans like <laughs> that's not really the demographic necessarily that that should be showing up mm -hmm. and they've got this one kid of color who then they like make a, into a stereotype in that moment which is crummy because she the character is cool and strong and like has her own personality and doesn't but white people love to like homogenize and like mysticize the cultures that they don't understand and just say that oh they're all asian she can't just be another kid the fact that she's brown you have to like draw attention to it and make it into a spectacle instead of just letting her be a kid like any other kid yeah pretty gross yeah i would say that that's the only well okay i guess there's two really jarring scenes in the movie and it would be that 
And then the opening scene that we already talked about where it was like, where are these strange men taking this girl in the hotel? Very jarring. Yeah. Other than that, it's a pretty, um, pretty clean And the train chase, very (laughs) jarring and scary. That was just hilarious because it was just so absurd and over the top. And then the thought of parking your car on the tracks is is your method to stop a train. (laughs) Yes. I did want to say, so like Jodie Foster is amazing in this movie. Helen Hayes is Mm -hmm. so lovely in this movie. My favorite character is David Niven's character. He plays Mm. Priory the butler who Mm -hmm. also played like Priory the butler is playing a lot of different other characters in the household because they're broke. So that's the other thing about that nobody knows about Candleshoe is like they're broke because they're in the English countryside in this gigantic house. And this lady is like giving to charity and stuff and trying to take in kids and they don't have enough money to pay the taxes is like the thing. He's like playing Gipping, the gardener and like the Duke so-and-so who comes to tea or whatever. Yeah, I thought it was like made sense that he was and not, I mean, it didn't make sense, but I understood the concept that he was playing all the roles of the different staff to, because of the money issue. But then when I found out that he wasn't only playing staff, he's also playing grandma's Her friends. friends. <laughs> super funny I know I love it just because like all of her old friends had had to move away for similar probably like financial reasons or they were old and died or something but so yeah. he was like making up the population of this town yeah but he I think is so funny and adorable and lovely in this movie and he's also just like very loving with the kids And that's the problematic dynamic I just was going to briefly mention is that Mm. watching it now, I'm like, I don't appreciate how much they're putting on this just to save grandma's dignity or her like, you know, save her from knowing the truth. The only people that know that they're broke are Priory, the butler and all the kids who are like working their butts off to like keep the household running and make it seem like they have a functional staff mm-hmm. and like make it seem like they're making the rent and it's so much to put on the kids I really really hate that and then it's like no you guys are the adults work it out she's an adult woman who can know the truth it turns out at the end like she did know all along that things were pretty bad but she was yeah. sort of enjoying the fantasy of it that he was creating which and in almost... the meantime the kids are suffering yeah that actually made it worse like the kids and priori were suffering <laughs> yeah <laughs> that she along. wouldn't yeah that she was playing along so yeah. I didn't like that it also set up this weird need for secrecy mm-hmm. um about the wrong things it's like yeah why don't you protect them from knowing how close you are to like being in debt or whatever Mm -hmm. you can protect them from that don't put the burden on them to keep these secrets about it like that shouldn't be the thing that that, that's being the secretive thing yeah that's the opposite thing of not only putting way too much pressure on these kids and then kind of infantilizing the grandma a little bit by implying that she couldn't handle the truth. She's an adult woman. (laughs) She can, you can talk to her about the real world instead of piling all that stress onto the kids. 
Yeah. Instead of Peter, who's like also 15, but seems like he's about 30 because he's <laughs> like trying to keep everything together. The older, the oldest yeah. of the kids. The the actress who played Clooney was actually 20. No way. Really? Yeah. Yeah. She was six years older than Jodie. Dang. She mm-hmm. looks like a baby. Mm-hmm. The only people like of the kids and like the the bad guys and the kids, the only people I recognized or person I recognized from anything else was Grimsworthy. I didn't mm. recognize any of the kids. I don't know if Clooney or anybody like did anything else, but Grimsworthy was the mom and Harold and Maude. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, I don't think, I mean, I know Sarah Tomacuni didn't do anything else. And Veronica Quilligan, who played Clooney, had a couple other credits, but not enough for her to have a Wikipedia page. <laughs> like I said, quite a few people, this was their last feature film or feature project. And some of the actors did not go on to do much else, except for Jodie Foster, who went on to have an epic career. Mm-hmm. Oh, the fun fact that I was going to tell you about the house that they filmed in. Well, the interior of this manor was, you said it was a studio at Pinewood Universal. Studios. Uh, no, in, Studios. in London. But then the exterior of it that they used to portray Candleshoe that you see in like the opening credits when you see the word Candleshoe on screen is the Compton Wine Yates Warwickshire. <laughs> home of Spencer seventh Marquess of Compton which I I don't Marquis Marquis of Compton maybe because I heard someone use that word somewhere in the movie and was like they actually said Marquess because that's what I thought too I thought it was Marquis and we had the subtitles on and and they were like Marquess and I was like is that how you say that weird oh interesting Uh, and apparently they still live there the Compton family like through oh all gosh. the generations, they still to this day live in this castle. <laughs> they live in Candleshoe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what a dream. Yeah, I think oh, that man. about that about wraps it up for this film. Is there anything else that you really wanted to talk about or address in regards to Candleshoe 1977? Watch it. Go find it. It's I mean, it's on Disney Plus now. I believe that you can find it for free on YouTube in playlists. So you have to like watch the different clips. Um, yeah. And then it is on Disney Plus. And if you don't want to give Disney money, I bet you have a friend who will share their login with you. Or you can come borrow my DVD copy of it. Or you or can my find VHS Lindsay. copy of it. <laughs> find Lindsay and you can borrow either a DVD or a VHS. <laughs> Watch it for, for Jodie Foster, for David Niven and his like amazing character acting and Helen Hayes being like the loveliest grandma. Oh, another thing to watch it for the outfits, especially Jodie Foster's wardrobe. But in general, yes. just like Harry Bundage, uh, his suits, his like wool oh. suits that you don't you just don't see anymore. Yeah, super fun. Good call. Super fun outfit. And if for some reason you refuse to watch it after us saying so, just find the train chase on YouTube. The train chase alone looks like so scary and dangerous, like stunt drivers should be doing it. But it looks like kids in the car. Well, it was the 70s, so it was probably a five year old (laughs) and no one had seatbelts. It was Jodie Foster. She was doing. Oh, yeah, she could. She'd be capable. Mm -hmm. well thank you so much for being on this episode and talking to me about this this movie that's so special to you it was really nice to to hear about your perspective on it thank you so much for chatting with me and letting me be a guest this was this was a blast yay yay bring your own popcorn i will i'll do it (laughs) 
I'm gonna go do it right now. You see if I don't. <laughs>